Welcome to The World on Fire. I'm your host, Greg Wilpert. Earlier this week, two anti-mining protesters were shot and killed in Panama, bringing the death toll during anti-mining protests to four. The protests, which have been ongoing for over two weeks now, have pretty much shut the country down. The issue that the protesters are opposing is a mining contract renewal for the Canadian mining company First Quantum Minerals, which hopes to excavate copper in Panama from an open pit mine. Joining me to talk about what is happening in Panama and what it means is Michael Fox, who is based in Panama at the moment. He is a freelance journalist and host of the soon-to-be-launched podcast Under the Shadow. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. Thanks so much, Greg. So let's start with the latest developments. Uh, what happened this past week and what's the situation like in Panama at the moment? So uh, the, the big thing that's been covering the news, which you just touched on, was this killing uh, of these two anti-mining protesters where someone, a Panamanian, it went back and forth whether he was actually an expat from the U.S., but he was not. He is a Panamanian citizen who was born here in Panama, uh, just walked up and shot two people in the protests. And it's a sign of the tension that the extension of these protests, and particularly the blockades, is having in Panama. Uh, like right now, I'm in the western province of Chiriqui. I'm in a town called Boquete, which those who are retired might know of it because it's kind of a retirement community. A lot of expats who are here. Uh, we've been out of gas for the last two weeks. Uh, products at supermarkets are running short. Gas, like, you know, heating fluid uh, or, or heating oil and, 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 and gas, propane gas in order to, uh, you know, cook with your stoves and things like that has been out for several days. Uh, and there's no end in sight of when things might be coming back, right? So I just was at the store yesterday trying to buy eggs. You can't get those. The one positive here is that this is kind of a breadbasket for the country. So we've got lots of vegetables and fruit with elsewhere around the country do not have. And the protests and the blockades have continued. And when we talk about the blockades, you know, basically the Pan American Highway is this main artery that cuts through Panama east to west from the east coast uh, to the west coast. And it's been blocked, uh, you know, up and down the Pan American Highway uh, for the last, over the last two weeks at this point. So it means that major buses, you know, can't get in, shipments of goods. That's why we don't have gas here as of the last, um, the last week and a half. In fact, people are now selling gas kind of on the street, but other people are claiming they might be watered down, so don't do it because it might hurt your car. So it's a pretty intense situation. Schools are out. They're now, they've now gone online. Uh, university classes have been postponed. Uh, and basically the city is, is, is here and cities, I mean, across the country are shut down. We've been staying at this, uh, at this one local spot by this restaurant and hotel, and they've been completely shut for the last few days. And this is really hard, Greg, because it's the middle of the country's Independence Day month. So independence celebrations were just last Friday, and they were expected to, to run throughout the weekend. And what that means, this is the, the biggest tourist moment of the year. This is when restaurants and hotels really make back the money they've been losing throughout. Uh, and everything has been shut down. It's been shuttered. There haven't been any parade. There's nothing been happening. So for the business community, for commerce, uh, for, for local communities, it's been really, 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 really hard. And the fact that there is almost no end in sight is also you know, really concerning. So that's what it kind of looks like now. Protests are still happening. The roadblocks continue. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard moment. Hmm. Sounds almost like a general strike, really. Um, 
But um, how did it come to this? My understanding is that the mining company, First Quantum Minerals, has been operating in Canada for a very long time already. Uh, what is it about this latest contract and this, this uh, copper mine in particular that is causing so much opposition? And what are the protesters demanding from the government? Right, so the, the most important thing you need to remember here, Greg, is, and this is, I mean, there are several layers of why people are so upset, and we can dive into those uh, in the next few minutes. But the most important thing is this all harkens back to the role of the U.S. government and the Panama Canal. Uh, and bear with me for a second. I'll get to First Quantum in a second. But the reason why is because remember that the U.S., the Panama Canal wasn't just a canal. It was a whole canal zone that was essentially U.S. property in Panama. And it meant that that whole region around the Panama Canal, Panamanians could not come into. It was not authorized. It was, it was a U.S. enclave within Panama. Panamanians fought for 100 years to get that zone back and to kick the U.S. out. And the reason, the, the thing that every single person in the streets is talking about is this is a reminder of that. They do not want a foreign company to come in to be authorized and basically ceded a piece of Panamanian property, a Panamanian land, to do with whatever they want with. And part of the thing with this contract is the fact that it says the previous contracts actually said that the Panamanian government or Panamanians could not overfly the area of the mine. Uh, that even now the, the contract says that the port which is supposed to take out this copper um, from directly from the mine, you know, Panamanians aren't authorized to use that without the authorization of the mine in first quantum. So it means that's what people are so upset about. This is a, a handing over of a piece of Panamanian, Panamanian property and it is a reminder. You know, it, it was not so long ago, we're talking about just 20 years ago, that Panama basically got back that territory that used to be the canal zone. And they're saying, no, we're not going to do this again. We are not going to hand this over. So that's the bigger vision. And that's really what's at stake. And this is why, you know, because I was trying to wrap my brain around it too. Like most countries I've been in, in Brazil or elsewhere, okay, there's a mine. People aren't going to shut down the country for weeks around, you know, one mine. Maybe they should, but that, they're, they're not going to. But that is what is at stake. Now, we'll, I'll talk about the environmental stuff in a second. But so what happened was going back the previous contract, and you're right, since 2019, First Quantum has been extracting copper um, from this mine. So it's been um, it, it, under operation. It's been happening for several years. Now, back several years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that the contract with the previous contract with First Quantum over this mine was unconstitutional because it was not in the benefit of the, of the, of the Panamanian good. And that first contract essentially... First Quantum was was giving to the Panamanian state something like $35 million a year, which is just chump change when you think about it for, for the, the major extraction, the size of this mine. And remember, Greg, this is the largest open pit copper mine in Central America. This thing is huge. It's a massive amount of territory. In one of my reports talking about it, it's roughly two times the size of Manhattan. So it's not just like, you know, a tiny neighborhood or, you know, a piece of land where it's it's very, very big. Um, and so that is important. So the so the the Supreme Court said no. This contract is not working. Uh, you need to go back and rewrite the contract. And that's what the government's been doing for the last two years. Now, throughout this entire time, First Quantum has continued to extract gold. It's been continued to do um, and extracting roughly three hundred thousand tons of, of of copper a year. So the government over the last two years has been renegotiating the contract. They they solidified it. They came to it. They signed an agreement, then it came up to Congress on October 20th. Now, now Congress 
can take a long time to debate this thing, but they essentially, they approved it in three debates over one week, and at the exact same time, uh, the very next day, then the president signed into action. So that was part of what people were so upset about. Now, the government says that they got a lot of input from the community. People said that is just not the case, uh, and, and they're extremely upset at the fact that this was approved so fast by Congress. I mean, literally just in three days, right? Uh, and then signed in. So that was also made people say, you know, look, they're willing to just give over a piece of, of our, our land for nothing. Now, the new contract, what it does, and the government's been very clear about kind of heralding this as a huge win for the Panamanian state. The new contract basically uh, increases the amount that the state is going to be receiving from this mine per year by 10 times. So now it's $375 million a year that the Panamanian state is supposed to be receiving. Uh, a good chunk of that money, the president, Laurentino Cortizo, has already said should be going to... Uh, to shore up the uh, social security system, which is which is having a really hard time here. In fact, he came out just days after the protest started and said that uh, by November, by this month, they're going to be ensuring that pensioners in the country, 120,000 pensioners are going to be receiving at least $350 uh, a month because of kind of the windfall profits from this mine. And that's in some cases uh, as much as 80% higher than what they're receiving right now. So the government's really looking at this as a profit gainer for uh, government coffers as a way to bring in funds. And of course, uh, it's really you know good for the, the government itself and the image abroad. Now, of course, it's also true that the vice president has long ties with uh, First Quantum, with the mine itself. So a lot of people are saying, hey, this is only happening. It's only being pushed because of the involvement of the vice president, because of the ties from First Quantum. There's been a lot of rumors that First Quantum paid money to the congressional representatives. We don't have any facts or information about that, but those are rumors that a lot of people are talking about and more reason why they're, they're out in the streets and so frustrated. Uh, and so right now they've got the new contract. People say that this one is just like the old one, except for the state's getting a little bit more money. There now have been eight different lawsuits brought before the Supreme Court uh, here in Panama, and they're waiting for the Supreme Court to make some sort of a ruling. And that's really where things stand right now. Um, Laurentino Cortizo, the president, came out after about a week of the protest and said, listen, I'm going to call for a referendum in December and we'll let the people decide if you want the contract or not. And people said, no, we don't want that. We don't want the mining contract. And well over the majority of the population, something like 65% of the population, does not want this and would rather protect the environment in those areas. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, and so that's where things stand. Laurentino Cortiz says, we're going to do a referendum. It went back to the Supreme Electoral Court, who said, we don't have the means nor the agenda to be able to do some sort of a referendum. Congress then went and approved and said, if you want to do a referendum, we can do it. And we authorized the Supreme Electoral Court to do it. Um, and in fact, it looked for a second like Congress might be moving to then uh, gut, you know, like to, to then, you know, recede the contract they had just signed. And then they stopped after two different votes and said, you know what, we're going to leave it in the hands of the courts. So that's where everything is right now. Now, it's unclear, as you know, Supreme Courts can move slowly. It's unclear how long it's going to take them. Many people are saying that it's looking like we might get some sort of a word from the Supreme Court by late next week, sometime in mid-November. But in the meantime, things are shut down. Uh, like I said, gas is out. Uh, propane is running out. Food is running short. Uh, and so tensions are running really high. And this is interesting, Greg. In the very beginning, when the protests launched and hit the streets, 
This was a wide swath of the population. And I'm talking about activists. The major construction union, Suntrak, was really involved, and they're extremely radical. They've been out in the streets from day one. But you also had students and teachers and indigenous um, groups, including upper class folks, who are saying, we don't want this, we don't like the president, and they were banging their pots and pans, which is oftentimes seen as you know, an act of protest from the upper classes. So it was a white business people. Everybody was in the streets. And that's extremely interesting, Greg. And one of the things that you know, nobody has been talking about is why this has not been covered uh, at a deeper level. And obviously, this is touching interests that has to do with Canada, Canadian corporation, with U.S. financing, right? Now, if this was something or a situation that the U.S. government didn't like it, they, I'm sure that we would have heard a much more about how these protesters have been in the streets because this has been shutting down the country, and yet outside of Panama, you really have heard very, very little. Um, but it is a massive thing, and the big issue is that we don't know what the end game is or where it's going to, you know, what's on the horizon, how this is going to end up. You said you were going to say something also about the environmental impact. I mean, uh, open pit mines, of course, are pretty notorious for being <laughs> extremely damaging. Uh, just how bad is it in, in this case? Well, notorious for being damaging, absolutely. Remember that this is a high biodiverse region, right? The, the Caribbean coast here running up and down, uh, extremely important. Um, according to the contract, what we understand is that as much as a billion um, cubic meters of water can be used by the company for this mine a year. Remember, this is times of drought. We just saw a few months ago where literally the Panama Canal, uh, the, the water was so low that there was a ship that ran aground and people couldn't get through it, right? Now, it has been raining in recent months, and that's been uh, a godsend for many Panamanians. But remember that at least a quarter of the country do not have uh, running water 24 hours a day, potable running water. So people see... The ability of this mine to be able to use as much water as it wants, essentially, whereas Panamanians don't have that same access. And, you know, people are obviously up in arms. There's been images of tapirs and animals in the mine place that, you know, who are, you know, extremely bad off. And the images of the mine, it's just massive. It's an open pit mine. It's what you imagine. Um, and the environment is an important thing for many Panamanians, you know. And so this, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing, Greg, because the major maybe the top three issues why people are in the streets have to do with sovereignty you know and 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 the role of a foreign government it has to do with the environment and has to do with the 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 panamanian canal which is a huge source of income for the country so when you think about the fact that people are, are protesting about these things and willing to stand up in defense of the environment and defense of their sovereignty is really huge and um i think it says a lot about this moment and also, you know, Panamanians, they are not going to give up. This is not the type of protest where you say, oh, okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll make some agreements and then we'll go home. That doesn't happen here. Um, even more importantly, it's important to remember just, just last year, Panama saw three weeks of massive protests that shut down the country roughly from July until August. Uh, those were uh, regarding inflation, high gas prices, and it took the government a long time, created, a, you know, um, a dialogue with social movements to be able to sit down and say, okay, listen, we're going to try and resolve this. And many Panamanians feel like that that situation did not actually improve. Things did not improve that much. And so they're also weary to enter into dialogue with the government about this, the same government, Laurentino and Cortizo, that everybody is so upset with. Um, and so remember that this isn't just kind of a one-off, but this comes after 
these massive protests that people saw last year. And this is the other issue that many business people are talking about, uh, hotel, restaurant owners, is the fact that <clears throat> Panama hasn't really had its moment after the end of COVID. So it's been in the thick of it for, for four years. First, you had COVID 2000, 2001, 2002. As soon as things are starting to come back last year, you had three weeks of protests that shut down the country. Now you have three weeks of protests uh, or two and a half, but it's obviously going to be three, at least three weeks by, by the time this is over. Um, and so, again, this is really hitting um, the business sector really hard. And what can you say about the government? I mean, uh, Laurentino Cortizo, it sounds like he's being a bit inept in handling this. He, uh, he's, apparently, he comes, you know, his party is considered to be center left, but he, uh, he's not really known to be part of the second, so-called second pink tide in Latin America. So um, what's, what's, what's on his agenda? I mean, and, and who's behind him? Yeah, well, these are great questions, Greg. I mean, first off, he's the, he's the former head of the National Assembly, former ag minister. Like you said, his party kind of center left, but much more centrist. Uh, and as we've seen out in the streets, indigenous folks, unions, workers, social movements, <clears throat> as well as the upper class, everybody's against him. He really doesn't have uh, much support at this time. He also has cancer. Uh, and so many people are pointing to that as a possibility of why he's he's unable to kind of handle this situation at the moment and and things have kind of gotten out of hand now keep in mind also greg that the elections are only six months away um may 5th 2024 are the elections here it is an interesting moment because with all these protests happening um already what we saw from the protests last year is that some members more radical progressive members of the left really kind of risen to the to the to the fore of kind of this uh, network of roughly 10 people that are going to be, the, you know, the, the 10 top candidates for the elections just next year. Obviously, Laurentino Cortiso, so he is not on the ballot. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of an impact these protests could have. You know, if you look at what's happened in many other countries that have seen kind of turmoil and protests uh, in the lead up to elections that are happening, you either have the possibility of someone much more on the left, much more radical coming into power, or you have the possibility of something like Bolsonaro happening, somebody much more on the right. Uh, that's my kind of prediction for next year. We don't know what's going to happen, but people are upset with the traditional parties right now. They blame them for passing this through Congress. They blame Laurentino Cortizo for signing it immediately. And they say this whole system is messed up and screwed up. Um, and we need a massive change. So I think that next year's elections, we're going to see a shakeup. The big question is, is this going to be a shakeup more in the direction of, uh, of you know, um, Bukele in El Salvador? Or are we going to see a shakeup more in the direction of Lula, say, in Brazil? Hmm. Now, finally, you have a podcast that's coming up called Under the Shadow. Um, what shadow are you referring to here? And is this shadow present in Panama at the moment? And if so, how? So the shadow is present everywhere across Latin America and has always been. The shadow is the United States. In fact, the political and economic uh, movements uh, and tools of the United States. And it's also the Monroe Doctrine, right? Remember the Monroe Doctrine? We go back, James Monroe, basically exactly 200 years ago this year, said that the United States had a right to intervene across the region, that the, the, the foreign powers, the European foreign, foreign powers, could not no longer intervene in Latin America. And it was the United States that was essentially going to 
to, to, to this was the United States realm. The Latin America was the United States back backyard. And so this shadow is U.S. and U.S. policies, whether that's uh, coups and foreign policy abroad or the innumerable invasions that's happened to almost every country in the region. Um, so this is obviously the shadow here. Now, what's interesting about the shadow is the fact that in Panama, remember, the shadow is obviously, I mean, literally the United States helped to break Panama away from Colombia and then took over the Panama Canal region for 100 years. So you cannot talk about what's happening, even though many news uh, outlets do, but you cannot talk about what's happening in Panama right now, as I mentioned at the beginning, without talking about the 100-year-long occupation by the United States of the Canal Zone and what that enclave meant to Panamanians across the country. Because having that enclave of a foreign country inside their own country has made them absolutely resentful of the possibility of this happening again. So that is, like, that's on the minutia of what we're seeing. But it's extremely important. That's what everybody, everybody is feeling when they're marching out in the streets of the possibility of having a foreign company uh, or a foreign country come back here and do the same thing. Also, don't forget, Greg, and this is really important. First, Quantum Minerals, right? It's a Canadian company with Chinese and Korean backing, but also uh, U.S. investment companies, including, um, I'm looking down at my notes right here, U.S. Capital Group, Fidelity, Vanguard, BlackRock, all these people have investments in First Quantum. Stocks have dropped, they've tanked on just over the last month by 50% First Quantum stocks. And the mine itself is largely invested by First Quantum, but then you have other investors, and we don't actually even know who the other investors are in the mine. We know who the investors are in First, Quant um, First Quantum, but we don't know who necessarily who these other investors are uh, involved in the mine. So all these things are extremely important. They're all foreign investors, and this is why you know those people are in the streets. And if you're listening right now, you can actually hear some horns because it's another protest that's starting this afternoon. Um, but this is deeply and it's profound for, for those people across Panama. Um, and obviously, the, the, the shadow looms large everywhere, everywhere across the region. Well, just one more follow-up on that. Um, the United States government, of course, I imagine, is watching the situation very carefully, precisely because it, Panama is the location of the Panama Canal. And apparently, this is having some, I mean, or it's very like possible that it will have a spillover effect, that is the protest movement, uh, perhaps for the elections and what that could maybe mean for the Panama Canal in the future. Uh, has there been any reaction from the U.S. government? Have you seen any kind of movement or any kind of uh, efforts to, to uh, interfere or influence the situation? We haven't seen much from the U.S. government. They have been obviously um, you know, sending messages to foreigners in Panama, which is usual, telling people to be, nerve, you know, uh, to, to be wary about protests and things like that. Stay away from the protests. Stay at home if you can. Uh, we haven't seen a, a, a major push by the U.S. government in this situation. I think they're trying to, to, to stay out of it. But absolutely, what happens, how this is resolved in the next few months and what happens uh, for the elections next year is going to be extremely important for the future of Panama and uh, the, the future of the canal. As far as I understand, shipments are still happening. Uh, I've been in touch with um, people and companies that are shipping outside of Panama and shipping elsewhere. Uh, and what it's meant is that at least those in Panama City have had to, you know, bring shipments or, or be bringing cars and elsewhere to Colon and elsewhere uh, overnight so that they're not involved in the, the so they don't have major issues with the, the big blockades. 
uh, getting those from Panama City to Cologne. Um, as far as I understand, there hasn't been a major interruption with the canal itself. Um, but obviously, these are major concerns because this is Panama and it's a massive hub for, for transportation internationally uh, and what that could mean. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. I'm speaking to Michael Fox, freelance journalist currently based in Panama. Uh, check out his upcoming podcast, Under the Shadow. Thanks again, Mike, for having joined me today. Thanks so much, Greg. Appreciate it. And thank you for joining the World on Fire. Until next time.